I've tried writing a quick description for this episode for a while now, and I just can't seem to think of anything that sums it all up. So stay tuned for this crazy and unbelievable story. I'm Coy Atkins, and this is the story of Sharon Kinney, a possible serial killer that's still out there. Sharon Hall was born on November 30, 1939, in Independence, Missouri. When she was only 16 years old, in the summer of 1956, she met James Kinney at a church event. James was only 22 years old, and he was a college engineering student at Brigham Young University. When the fall semester started back up, James left Independence, Missouri to go back to school in Utah. Sharon, she was looking for any way that she could to get out of Independence. So... She wrote a letter to James, saying that she was pregnant and he was the father. See, there were two things that Sharon really wanted. She wanted to have a lot of money. She wanted to leave independence. And what better way to do that than to be with a guy who's studying to be an engineer in Utah? But this kind of backfired on her because James, he didn't bring her over to Utah with him. Instead, he dropped out of school and moved back to Independence to focus on raising a family. On October 18, 1956, James and Sharon were married. Remember, she was only 16 years old. So on the marriage license, she actually lied and identified herself as being 18 years old. But shortly after the wedding, they ended up moving to Utah anyways. But this was only for a short amount of time before they ended up returning back to Independence. Once they were back in Independence, Sharon worked as a babysitter and James got a job as an electrical engineer. People noticed that Sharon didn't appear to be pregnant and she told them that she had a miscarriage. She soon became pregnant and had a little girl in the fall of 1957. Then a little after that, she got pregnant again and her and James had a son. Sharon continued living a lifestyle that was well above their means, which brought a lot of stress on their marriage. Sharon even began having an affair with a guy named John Boldiz, who was someone that she went to high school with. By 1960, James was considering divorcing Sharon. The main cause of this divorce was because of her spending habits. He also thought that she was having an affair, but he didn't have any proof and he wasn't certain of it himself. So the main thing was just her spending. On March 18, 1960, James told his parents that he spoke with Sharon about the divorce. She agreed to give him the divorce if he gave her the house, sole custody of the children, and $1,000. Now, his parents, they didn't want James to get divorced. They were very religious and they pressed him to stay with his marriage. But the next day, things would change drastically. Now, keep in mind, this next part is from... Sharon's version of the incident. Around 5.30 in the evening on March 19, 1960, Sharon heard a gunshot coming from the room where James was lying in bed. 
Sharon rushed into the room and found their two-year-old daughter on bed holding James's 22 caliber pistol. James was lying on the bed with a gunshot to the back of his head. Sharon immediately called the police, but by the time the police and an ambulance arrived, James was dead. Sharon told police that it must have been an accident. She said that James routinely allowed their daughter to play around with guns, and actually other friends and family members, they testified to the same thing. The detectives, they decided not to do a test for gunshot residue, which ideally would have shown if the two-year-old daughter did actually pull the trigger or if it was Sharon. But the detective in charge, so he decided against it. And you see, in 1960, gunshot residue tests were different than they are now. They didn't swab or use lights to shine on your hands. Back then, they had to pour a hot wax on a person's hand, and then they made a mold of it. They would then take that mold and spray some chemicals on it, which would turn a certain color if there were any signs of gunshot residue. And the detectives, they decided that putting hot wax on a two-year-old's hand and a young widow, it just wasn't what they wanted to do. They did do some sort of test. They got a similar gun as the one that was used to shoot James. They gave it to the two-year-old to see if she could actually work it, and she was able to pull a trigger. So with this very convincing test done, the case was closed ruled an accident. Then as soon as it was closed, Sharon collected on James's life insurance for $29,000, which today would be about $230,000. After Sharon got her money, she did what a lot of people do when they come into a large amount of money. She bought a new car. The car salesman that she bought from was a guy named Walter Jones. Now, when you think of the quote-unquote American dream of the 1950s, Walter was probably living that. He is married to his high school sweetheart, Patricia Jones. He served in the Marine Corps for a few years, and after his discharge, he and Patricia settled down in Independence, Missouri with their children. Walter had a really good job selling cars, and Patricia worked as a file clerk for the IRS. As perfect as Walter's life seemed, he had a secret. He wasn't the most faithful husband, and when Sharon stepped into the dealership to buy her new Ford Thunderbird, an affair followed quickly. For Walter, this wasn't a serious relationship or anything, but for Sharon, that was a different story. Sharon tried multiple times to get Walter to leave his wife and kids, but he refused to do so. And in May, just two months after James was killed, Sharon tried to get Walter to go on a trip with her to Washington State but he refused to go. She wasn't too happy about him not going, but on May 25th, she returned, and they spent some time together. Now, tell me if this part of the story sounds a little bit familiar. Sharon told Walter that she was pregnant, and he was the father. But Walter wasn't really buying that. He told her that he didn't believe her, and he ended the affair. The next day, on May 26, Sharon made a call to the IRS office to speak with Patricia. She told Patricia that Walter was having an affair. But she didn't say that it was with her. Instead, she said that it was with her sister, and she wanted to meet with Patricia to tell her more about it. The night of May 26, 1960, Walter got off work, and he went home. But Patricia never made it home that night. Initially, Walter thought that Patricia was mad at him. See, earlier that morning, she confronted him because she thought he was having an affair. But when Patricia didn't return home the next day, 
Walter then went to police and filed a missing persons report. Walter then met with Patricia's friends that she carpooled to work with. They told him that she did receive a phone call from a woman who wanted to meet with her, but they didn't know who the woman was. But the friends did drop Patricia off to meet the woman. They gave Walter the description of the woman and the car she was driving. The description of the woman sounded familiar. And the description of the car sounded a lot like a car that Walter had sold. Walter confronted Sharon later that night and Sharon admitted to him that she did meet with Patricia. She said that she told Patricia about the affair and then she dropped her off near Walter's house. She then claimed that she saw Patricia talking to an unknown man in a green car. Now, later on, Walter admitted that when he had this conversation with Sharon, he lost his temper, even to the point where he was physically threatening to hurt her. Because he thought that more had to have happened. A couple of hours later, the police got a call from a man named John. John claimed that he was out with a female in this lover's lane type of area. And while they were in the area, they found a body of a female. When police arrived, they identified the female as Patricia Jones. She was wearing a black sweater and a yellow skirt, and she had been shot four times by a gun that would later be identified as a 22 caliber pistol. When police were first talking to John, the female wasn't around. He said that he took her back home to drop her off before calling the police after they found the body. The detectives questioned John about the female that he was with, and he told them that her name was Sharon Kinney. And he was John, the same John that Sharon had known since high school. The spot where Patricia's body was found, well, that was a spot that John and Sharon went to often when they would carry on their affairs. On May 28th, investigators began putting together the puzzle pieces of this case. They interviewed Walter, John, and Sharon. Walter and John provided written statements for everything for their involvement, and they agreed to take a lie detector test. Sharon, on the other hand, she spoke to detectives, but she refused to write a statement. She refused to do a lie detector test as well. While detectives were working on their interviews with those three, other investigators began focusing on the crime scene. At one point, they even used a local Boy Scouts troop to set up a search party looking for the gun in the area where Patricia's body was found. While they didn't find a gun, a 22 caliber bullet was located in the ground right under Patricia's body. While this was the same caliber of gun that killed James, police knew that it wasn't going to be the same gun because they still had that gun in their evidence. But a co-worker of Sharon's came forward to police and told them that Sharon asked him to buy her a 22 caliber pistol at the beginning of May. The detectives searched Sharon's house for that gun, but they were never able to find it. When they asked Sharon, she said that she had no idea what happened to it and and it seemed to have just disappeared. On the night of May 31st, a funeral was held for Patricia. That same night, Sharon was placed under arrest at her home for the murder of Patricia. But the next afternoon, she posted her bond of $20,000 and was released. But things were about to get a lot more complicated. Over the last few years, I've been writing a fictional book called One Moment, and it's now available on Amazon. It's based in St. Augustine, Florida, and it tells the story of Micah and Sarah. After spending six years in the army, Micah returned to his hometown. Returning home was never part of his plan, but after the physical, emotional, and mental stress from war, home was the best place for him. Sarah is beginning to put her life back together after escaping an abusive marriage. 
at 24 years old, she's a 911 dispatcher living in St. Augustine. While she is starting to heal, she crosses paths with Micah. Immediately, there is an undeniable connection between the two of them, and they know that they were put in each other's lives for a reason. When Sarah's jealous and abusive ex-husband finds out about the new relationship, he has to get involved himself. While this puts a strain on Sarah and Micah's relationship, dark secrets begin to come out, and they learn that maybe you never truly know someone, and sometimes the best and the worst things in life can all be traced back to one moment. One moment's available now on Amazon. It's $9.99 for a paperback copy and $2.99 for an ebook. The Amazon link is in the show notes, and if you read it, I really hope you enjoy it, and please let me know what you think of it. The doctor performing the autopsy did not hope this case at all. Patricia's body was actually taken to a funeral home and was embalmed before the autopsy was done. Because the body was embalmed, the doctor didn't even do a full autopsy. They knew that there were three bullets that were potentially in the body still. The doctor, he only got one of them out and didn't even try to get the others, and said that one should be good enough evidence. Patricia's body was then turned over to the funeral home to be buried. The doctor never even tried to look at the stomach contents, which would have given a more accurate time of death so the prosecutors could use that in trial. But things looked up momentarily. While they couldn't find the gun that was used in Patricia's murder, they did trace it back to the guy that Sharon's co-worker bought it from, and his name was Roy. Roy told police that before selling the gun, he shot the gun at a tree, and that the bullet still should be in the trunk of the tree. So he led police to this tree that contained the bullet. The thought behind this was if they could recover this bullet and match it to the bullets used in Patricia's murder, then they could link the murder weapon back to Sharon. Sounds easy enough, right? When the investigators were cutting out parts of the tree, the bullet was damaged in the process, and they couldn't use it to test. In June of the following year, Sharon's case went to trial. By that time, prosecutors were charging her with Patricia's murder, and they reopened James's case and charged her with his murder. But the two cases were being tried separately. In Patricia's case, the prosecutors laid out all of the evidence. They had the witnesses testify about dropping Patricia off to meet with Sharon, and that Sharon had the motive, the means, and the opportunity to kill Patricia. But the jury said that there were just too many loopholes, and Sharon was acquitted in that trial. Now was the time for James's murder trial which began in January of 1962. Even though this case was initially closed out as an accidental death, the prosecutors felt confident in this trial because they had a new witness. None other than Sharon's longtime friend, John. John came forward and said that before James's death, Sharon approached him and asked him if he would kill James for $1,000. But as quickly as their confidence went up, it fell just as fast. You know those times when you're nervous and you keep talking and saying things and probably well after you shouldn't be saying things? Well, that's how I'm picturing John's testimony once he was in the courtroom. Before all of this, he had gone through his testimony multiple times with the prosecutors and the grand jury, but something changed on the witness stand. He gave his testimony about Sharon offering to pay him $1,000, but then at the end, he added that he thought she was joking around and she wasn't serious about it which 
didn't look good for the prosecution or John's credibility. But at the end of the day, the jury wasn't buying that a two-year-old shot her dad in the head. Sharon was found guilty of James's murder and sentenced to life in prison. Normally, this would be the part of the case where I'd say, and this brings us to a conclusion of this week's episode, but not today, because this is far from over. In 1963, Sharon's conviction was overturned. Her lawyers argued that there were errors in the trial and she should be granted a new trial. These errors included that a juror was taking incomplete notes, that the number of potential jurors that were provided was not the correct amount, and finally, that the conviction was based off of speculation and not actual evidence. The Missouri Supreme Court agreed. They overturned the conviction and granted Sharon a new trial. And while she was awaiting the new trial, Sharon was out on bond. The second trial started in March of 1964. The jury was very carefully selected, but as soon as the trial started, it was declared a mistrial because one of the jury members once had a business relationship with somebody who worked with the prosecutor. And the third trial took place in June of 1964. In this trial, all of the witnesses, including John, took the stand. John gave the same statement as before, but this time he added more at the end. He said he wasn't sure if Sharon was joking or not, and that after James's death, she asked him not to tell anyone about her offer. The jury deadlocked in a 7-5 favor of acquitting Sharon, and this trial was declared a mistrial. A fourth trial was scheduled for October of 1964. During this time, Sharon was out on bond still. Part of Sharon's bond said that she was allowed to leave the state of Missouri. In fact, she was even allowed to leave the country while out on bond for murder charges. She just needed to get permission from the bond agent. But that's not what she did. In September, Sharon went to Mexico with another boyfriend of hers named Francis Puglisi. She went under the name of Jeanette Puglisi and said that she was Francis's wife. Once they were in Mexico, Sharon and Francis checked into a hotel but Sharon didn't feel safe in a foreign country, so she bought a gun. Not only did she buy a gun in Mexico, but they had also brought two with them across the border. On the night of September 18th, Sharon left the hotel without Francis. The two of them, they were running low on money, and she was going to go and try and get some. She went to a bar and met a guy named Francisco Ordonez. Then she ended up going back to his hotel room with him. According to Sharon, she only went back to the hotel room to see photos that he wanted to show her. But once they were back at the room, he made sexual advances towards her. Sharon then pulled out the gun and shot Francisco in the chest, killing him. A hotel employee ran to the sound of the gunfire. When he ran into the room, Sharon also shot at him, striking him in the shoulder. The employee was able to get out of the room and locked the door, which trapped Sharon inside until police arrived. It's kind of hard to claim self-defense when you shoot the employee who is going in the room and who is not threatening you. And police wasn't buying Sharon's self-defense claim either. They claimed that Sharon's motive that night was to rob Francisco. Then, whenever they got back to the hotel room, she tried to rob him, but he resisted and he was shot. During this investigation, the police found another gun in Sharon's purse. They searched hers and Francis's hotel room, and they also found the third gun there. Francis, he ended up being arrested on gun charges and entering the country illegally. The authorities in Mexico, once they found out who Sharon was, they began working with the prosecutors and investigators in Missouri. They were pretty much like, hey, we found three guns, and we know that y'all are still looking for one from Patricia's murder. 
Now they couldn't ship the guns to Missouri to be tested, but they could run their own test. So the police in Mexico began doing ballistic testing on the guns, and the one that was found in the hotel room was proven to be the same gun that shot and killed Patricia. But because Sharon had been acquitted on that crime, she could not be charged again. In 1965, Sharon was convicted on her crimes in Mexico and given 10 years in prison. She tried to appeal the conviction and the appeal went before another court in Mexico. But like a lot of things in her life, this kind of backfired because the court thought that the initial sentence was too short and they changed it to 13 years instead of 10. Four years later, on December 7th, 1969, the prison that Sharon was at was having a movie night for the inmates. During the movie, there was a blackout that took out the power to the entire prison. The power wasn't out for very long, but when it came back on, it would be several hours before anyone realized that there was one less prisoner. That evening, when Sharon missed her roll call, a citywide manhunt was underway for Sharon, but there were no signs of her. The FBI and Border Patrol were alerted just in case she tried to make it back to America, but they came up empty along the border as well. The authorities in Mexico continued this manhunt for about 10 days and then they backed off. The investigation into the escape revealed several theories. One thing that was for sure that was found during this investigation was that a door that was always locked and should have remained locked was found unlocked. One theory is that Sharon bribed some of the prison guards to help her escape. Another theory was that while she was in prison, she was dating a guy who turned out to be a Mexico City cop and that he may have helped her escape. But ever since that day, Sharon has not been seen. She has a warrant for her arrest out of Missouri and also one from Mexico. It's been debated back and forth on if Sharon is a serial killer or not. FBI profiler Candace DeLong and author James Hayes believe that Sharon's first murder was for the insurance money. From there, her murders were for pleasure. Candace stated that Sharon is a sociopath and has no remorse or empathy. To this day, Sharon would only be 80 years old, so it's very possible that she's still out there somewhere. There's no telling if there are any more or how many victims of Sharon's there just might be. And this brings us to a conclusion of this episode. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And if you're able to, please leave a rating and review. And I appreciate it all very, very much.